are listening to the Sankofa Council of Milwaukee Radio Broadcast, where the host is Dr. Janine James, Sister Ifua Ma'at, Sister Osati Anki, Brother Kwasi Kraft, and Brother Kojo Robinson. The Sankofa Council of Milwaukee Radio Broadcast is an affiliate of the Black Reality Think Tank Network, and it broadcasts on the Time for an Awakening radio platform. Contact them at SankofaCouncilMKE at gmail.com. I repeat, SankofaCouncilMKE at gmail.com. Finley Medical Clinic. We serve uninsured, underinsured, and insured individuals. Open Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Urgent Care Clinic Friday and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Call for an appointment at 414-988-3079. Finley Medical Clinic is accepting new patients. Vaccines and screenings for uninsured, underinsured, and insured. Located at 10721 West Capitol Drive, Suite 110. Call our office for an appointment today at 414 414-
pour Ashe. We'll pour to the creative spirit, the great Ashe out of which we all emerge, Ashe. We pour to that creative spirit by whatever name we know it, whatever name you hold in your heart, in your mind, whatever name your ancestors gave, whatever name you learned as a child, whatever name you believe it to be, whatever name you believe it to be in spirit or in science, Ashe. We pour to the first human beings who came into existence on this planet, the first human beings who raised the first structures, who cooked the first meals, who taught the first children, who had the first children, the first Africans, the first people who stood upright, who walked, who figured out how to stay on this planet, who figured out how to pass that knowledge on to their children and their children's children, the mothers and fathers of civilization. Ashe. Ashe. We pour the next libation to their grandchildren and their children's children, those who raised the great early civilizations of Kemet and Kush and Monomotapa, the great medieval civilizations of Ghana and Mali and Songhai and Kanem-Bornu. We pour to those who great the great civilizations of the Igbo people and the Hausa people and the Kikongo people and the Mambara people, the great Monday civilizations, the great Kikongo, the great civilizations of Southern Africa, the Bantu people, the great civilizations of Southeast Africa, the Dinka, the Shilat, the Nur. We pour to those millions who raised the foundations from which the world would learn what it meant to be human in the world, Ashe. Ashe. We pour to their children who upon the arrival on the shores of people they had never seen before, found themselves captured and marched overland, found themselves perishing by the millions before they were held on the holding cells and the open air pens on the coast of West, Central, Southern, and East Africa. We pour to the ancestors who did not know as they were stripped of all clothing and sent denuded into boats, packed like animals, and strewn their bones across the floor of the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. We pour to them who in the last moment on Africa grabbed the sand and grabbed the dirt and put it in their mouths and understood that the only thing they might have to preserve their place in that continent was their memory of that place and their ability to pass it on to their children. We pour to them. Ashe. Ashe. We pour to those Africans and their children who finding themselves cast adrift in Santiago, Cuba, who found themselves cast adrift in Porta, Spain, Trinidad, and Porta Prince, Haiti, who found themselves cast adrift in New Orleans and Charleston and Mobile, who found themselves cast adrift in Salvador, Bahia, who found themselves cast adrift in Barbados and the archipelago that formed the wayward and the, and the windward coast. We found them in these places, learning Portuguese and Spanish and French, whose often first words was, oh my God, oh Madre de Dios, who found themselves praying to survive and pass on to their children the memories. We pour to those ancestors who are represented in the thousands, buried in all the square miles of where we stand, and who sit here, buried before us in 400 caskets forged of wood from West Africa with the Dinkra symbols. Each one of them, each woman, man, and child, symbolic of millions the children of those who could not be killed, we pour Ashe. Ashe. We pour to their children who somehow survived the hells of enslavement and fought for emancipation in the Caribbean, the French, British, Dutch Caribbean, who fought for emancipation in South America, who fought for emancipation in Central America, who fought the struggles we refer to as the Civil War in the United States, who came out of that, marched out of enslavement through Reconstruction and found themselves making great migrations, eventually ending up in places like New York. Their children's children, who making away for themselves, became our great-great-grandparents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, our parents, 
Those who, when the first bones were discovered in this space, held their hands and said, stop, no more. We are here to speak for those who can no longer speak with their mouths. We pour for those ancestors, some of whom came to Howard University in 2004 and followed these caskets all the way back to New York. We pray to the great ancestors, the ones whose names we know and the ones whose names we don't. And at this moment, as we pour this libation, I would ask anyone who feels comfortable to say the name of someone in your bloodline who is no longer physically here, but who you know made it possible for you to be here. Go ahead, let's hear the names. Heywood Carr, Porter Griffin, Evelyn Glover. We pour to the names that we hold collectively. Ganga Zumba in Brazil. Toussaint L'Ouverture, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, and Henri Christophe in Haiti. We pour to the great Avengers, Nandi of the Maroons of Jamaica. We pour to the great ancestors, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass. Say the names that you study. Who are the names of the ancestors that you have come to hold in your heart and your mind as you hope that you can do what they did for us, for your children and children's children? Let's say some of those famous names. Malcolm X. John Henry Clark, John Jackson, Jacob Carruthers. And finally, two final libations. We pour to those who make it possible for us to do what we do. We pour to these rangers who stand guardian over this sacred space. We pour to these Africans and these folks who have come from Howard University, the staff, the faculty, the administrators who brought us here today to bear witness. This is not a libation, but an affirmation because their hearts still beat, their tongues still speak, their minds still think, and their minds still wish the best for us. We pour for all of those people who surrounded us on this journey today and made it possible for us to be here. We pour this affirmation of thanks, Ashe. Ashe. And finally, we pour to your children's children's children who will one day stand on this space and speak your name. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child.
to his many years in the pulpit of Philadelphia's Zion Baptist Church, a reference, too, to one who reigns in God's kingdom. This OIC Center has been the place where now uh, thousands of Liberian young men and young women have been trained doing constructive work and jobs. You hear a lot about the problems in Liberia, but you don't hear what's being done constructively out of programs like this. And I'm just, I'm overjoyed, I mean, from a swamp, to this and thousands of young men and women being helped of a nation shows uh, what faith and hope in God and hard work and self-help can do. It is a fitting metaphor for the Reverend Leon Sullivan, whose roar echoes from the mountains of West Virginia to the villages of Africa. 
Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you a leader among leaders, a true international leader, the Reverend Dr. Leon Howard Sullivan. A towering figure in America's civil rights movement, Sullivan has spent his life stalking his twin foes, injustice and oppression. Today we express our inexpressible appreciation to Secretary General Kofi Annan for permitting the announcement of the Global Sullivan Principle of Corporate Social Responsibility to be made at this special gathering at the United Nations. But Sullivan is a man who fights without bloodshed, whose territory is not bound by church walls or the barriers that divide races or nations. He says his ministry is to lift the downtrodden, to help those who have no clothes, who have no jobs, who have little hope. He has carried that calling into the boardrooms of international corporations, and his principles of equal opportunity help free a nation. I want you to work together and love each other and help each other and it will spread all over West Virginia and one day all over the world. The story of Leon Sullivan is a remarkable tale of faith and perseverance about a man who took a stand against injustice and oppression at an early age and has been standing on principle ever since. Was blind, but now I see. On March 1st, 1971, at 8 o'clock in the morning, Leon Sullivan, a minister from Zion Baptist Church in Philadelphia, walked into the corporate headquarters of General Motors in New York City to take a seat on the board of directors, the first African-American in the history of the United States to serve on the board. Sankofa Council of Milwaukee radio broadcast is an affiliate of the Black Reality Think Tank Network and it broadcasts on the Time for an Awakening radio platform. Contact them at Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. I repeat, Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. audience and welcome to our another broadcast we are blessed to have another thought-provoking conversation 
and an extraordinary guest who's going to be with us this evening. I really love that song, We Are In This Love Together by Brother Al Giroux. He's an ancestor now, and I'm sure our guest, um, who is in a younger generation, probably don't even know about Al Giroux, but he's actually from Milwaukee. And also, um, thank you for that ancestral profile, Dr. Uh, Sister Ante, of the Reverend Leon Sullivan who is the founder of OIC also. We're going to be having a great conversation in a minute. And But before we begin, I'd like to uh, also welcome our host, Sister Floor Mahat, and also Sister Ante, who will be giving us our purpose of staying closer. Hotep brother and uh, Hotep family, community family. Um, I hope all is well with everyone. I look forward to uh, further discussion with everybody. Greetings to everyone. Uh, this is Sister Osberta on team. Greetings. And if I can, I'd like to give the purpose of the Sankofa Council from the bylaws. The Sankofa Council of Milwaukee is an ever-evolving community dedicated to cultivating Sankofa, the reclaiming of our African memory, our African governance, and our African spirituality in order to provide a healing and environment, an empowering environment for the people of African descent globally. Through an immersion, an immersive exploration of study and practice, we exemplify the principles of Nguza Saba, which provide moral and unifying values as the foundation for constant movement towards restoring our people to our traditional greatness. We study and amplify, exemplify the ancient laws of Ma'at that allowed our ancestors to flourish, survive, and pass on a legacy of greatness and to interact harmoniously with the world by honoring the universal consciousness in all of creation. We, could, we contribute the skill sets we've acquired as we seek ways to share with our descendants the principles that have historically been our strength and that have sustained us through captivity, colonization, and accurate accuration. We're dedicated and committed for as long as it takes to fulfill this purpose. Thank you, Brother Quojo. Thank you so much for that. And now, without further ado, we're going to introduce uh, Brother Devin Anderson of the African American Roundtable. Devin is the African American Roundtable membership and coalition manager and he works to coordinate the Liberate MKE campaign. And the campaign's goal uh, is to divest money from the police department and fund community needs. He has been on staff since March 2019, and prior to that, uh, to joining the African American Roundtable, Devin worked as a field organizer 
for the Democratic Party in uh, 2018, and Devin graduated from Beloit College with a bachelor's degree in education and political science. So welcome, Devin. So glad you could yeah. be with us tonight. Yeah, thank you for having me this evening. It's such a beautiful evening outside. I mean, there were so many other things you could have been doing, and I really appreciate you being with us this evening to talk to us about the CARE Act, the, the American Rescue Plan Act, because a lot of us don't know very much about that, and I know that the roundtable does, because the roundtable is on top of anything budgetary that I um, I was able to find out when I stumbled into your meeting when I first met you and, and the roundtable. I stumbled into a meeting that you guys were having, and I was so impressed that um, I actually stood up and applauded you guys. And then I noticed that I didn't really recognize anybody in the room because of my age, I, I suppose, even though I've been involved in community advocacy for many, many years. But this is a group of young people who were so informed and so organized. I was just, I was astonished. And, and also I was wondering, why don't I know these, these people? But um, while I was there, I was able to get some of their business cards and I was able to stay in touch with them, including yourself. And I'm so glad that we were able to actually meet so why don't you tell us, tell us more about the, the African American Roundtable, because a lot of people may not may not may not know what your purpose is or your mission or vision. Yeah, thank you so much for um, for that. And I think uh, I've been with the African American Roundtable for now three years, and um, I've enjoyed it so deeply. But we are um, a nonprofit located um, on the northwest side of Milwaukee. And we want to figure out um, and help build a Milwaukee that's thriving for black folks, where black folks can walk and live in their dignity, where black folks have access to, to all the things they need to live dignified lives. And Charles talked about um, the budgetary work and us following the finances. We, we do that work because I think Dr. King talks about budgets being moral documents. How we spend our money matters. And what we choose to spend our money tells us what we value and who we value. And at the round table, one of, the, one of our noticings is the Milwaukee, the city of Milwaukee, spends about 46% of its budget on the police. And wow. it, yeah, and that comes out to about $300 million of a year. And then, just suppose that they spend about 3% on public health. They spend about 3% on the libraries. They spend about 3% on neighborhoods. So that tells you what they value. They don't value making sure that, that black folks have the, um, have the things they need, whether that's the access to their local library, to use the Wi-Fi, to access to do job hunts, to um, maybe take some, some interviews, um, to get books, to get knowledge. They don't value that. Instead, they value... That's, you know, 3% on housing and 46, that's almost 50% of our city's budget going to law enforcement. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not making a difference. That, that's, 
and that's the point. I, I was just at a couple of sessions this morning, and one of the things um, people talked about is the fact that, like, right, we have what we're spending so much money on policing. We're spending so much. Um, there's so many officers. We see them everywhere. One exercise we often have people to do. I'm sorry. I'm just going to give a little background, and then we can move in to some of the American Rescue Act stuff. But one activity we have people do is have them think about all the places where they see police regularly or where police are, or they've seen police in their life. And one of the things we realize, we see the police at the library. We see them at the Target. We see them at the Walmart. <laughs> we see them at the Bucks game. We see them um, at the corner store. We see them at the park. We see them at the zoo. We see them at the protest, right? We see police everywhere. And it's important to like have people wrap their minds around it. It's also been named the places we don't see the police and what we don't see them doing. We don't see them like the moments before something bad happens, before the shooting happens. And so we, we do some of those exercises to make to point out that police are like do a lot of the things we don't need them or don't want them to do. And they don't actually do the things we think they do. Right. So one of the things we also did with through some research is highlighted actually like what are the top ten things like top ten call for services or top ten things people call the police for or the police do. And not one of them, not one in the top ten was was responding to violence crimes. Instead, like one was they do a business check. Another one was a welfare check. Another one was just um was just street patrolling. And that accounted to, those three that I just named, accounted for about 18% of, of what police do. And so we're trying to like have the conversation and name actually, like right now, right now, right now, today, tonight, this evening, like right, if we got rid of about 20% of the police budget, we would miss them because like, they're not doing the things we think they're doing. And we want to have that, be able to have those conversations with residents to like name that actually we see we see the most beautiful community. <laughs> we see the most beautiful community, and what we see in that vision of community is actually from the interconnectedness, being in relationship with our neighbors, being in relationship with the people who live the block. What we see is actually we see a library or a community space at the corner, a park. We see our young people being able to play outside on our block. And we see them being able to play outside on our block safely and past sundown. Uh, you know, I'm not as old as, as you, but I, I do remember I, I, I'm older. <laughs> Relative, I'm like 26 now, but, but I'm reminiscing more <laughs> with age. I'm reminiscing more and more with age. And I just remember, like, right, when I was growing up, that, like, right, when the streetlights came on, that was the time to come in, right? You know, so slightly after sunset, when the streetlight, whenever the streetlight came on, there was never a time, it was when the streetlights came on. That's, and what I'm also hearing from, from folks growing up and from parents right now is that, like, that's not even safe anymore. Like, right? And so what we're trying to do is allow people to reminisce back to days when maybe like right their neighborhood where they were in community in better community and deeper community and deeper fellowship and deeper relationship 
with their neighbors, with the folks who live on their block. And to use those visions, to use those moments how we grew up. Like grew up, I remember, like, you know, we had a lot of friends on the block and we knew each other. And, you know, any one of my friend's parents could, could reprimand or, or say, like, come on, Devin, you're out of line. And so we want to use those memories and use those experiences to project forward a, a brighter, bolder vision of what community is that's very different um, than this moment um, it feels like we're living right now. Well, that's exactly what Sankofa is all about. You, you're familiar with the, with the bird that's uh, moving forward, looking back with an egg in its mouth? Yeah. The symbol of Sankofa. You know, we can uh, reclaim our legacy and be informed by our ancestors, which had civilizations that lasted for thousands of years, right? But we don't uh, learn about that. It's not in our history books. And now that we're beginning to teach uh, our, our young people the history of America, American history, uh, now we have the, you know, the, the resistance to that, the backlash to that, they call it critical race, race theory. And I see you, your background is in education, and you're the perfect person to, um, to be with us tonight because I love the way you articulate and break things down and explain uh, some of these things that, you know, we're going to talk about in a minute. And with that political science background as well, because when we're talking, we're talking about economics pretty much. And economics is, is not economics by itself. It's political economics. And so now we're looking at the American Rescue Plan Act. And our promo is entitled, Who Gets How Much of What? Now, we know if we look back in history, we noticed that a lot of resources were provided, perhaps legislatively, you know, like the, um, the bank, the um, what's the name of the bank that Frederick Douglass was in charge of, the Freedmen's Freedman Bank. And, and, and then, you know, of course, that didn't work out in our favor. And we have legislation on the books right now, and... It seems like somehow it's, you know, we don't get what we're supposed to get. Like the 40 acres of a mule. Or like when, during Reconstruction, the carpetbaggers went down uh, from the north. They went south and uh, assumed, a, a, you know, a lot of the political positions and took advantage of the resources which were provided for, you know, the uh, newly freed slaves. So now that we have this this American Rescue Plan Act, you know, with looking at what that is providing, but also being cognizant of what's happened in the past, don't you know? Do we need to be be watchful, or do we need to be um, apprehensive about how the funds are going to be used? Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm just going to maybe give a little bit of context and, and then I'll, I'll answer your question. So for folks who don't know, the American Rescue Act plan was, um, which I, which looks like right now will go down as probably at least before the midterm, is one of the key pieces of legislation that the Biden administration will pass. And so it was, it was ongoing response to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And it was like a stimulus bill. And it was a huge stimulus bill, I believe, 
the number is about I think about 2.7 trillion with a T. Um, and part of that was I believe we got uh, a 14. Most people got, or most American citizens got a 1,400 uh, check, a stimulus check, individual check. But another piece of it was unprecedented um, funding and resources for state and local governments. Over $350 billion for state and local governments. And within that $350 billion, um, the city of Milwaukee received about $394 million. And these were largely unrestricted funds, meaning that, um, that the cities and the states had huge discretion on how and what they sent the money out in, in very little criteria. The only thing that it really couldn't be used for is to pay pensions um, and, to, and to cut taxes. But other than that, um, it could be used for a lot, and you really want to use that, um, use that money to, um, to help your city recover and expand programming uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. So to your question and to the point is what's happening in Milwaukee and where's it going? So the money, the $394 million was given in two tranches. The first tranche came down last year and you received about half the payment. And the second tranche um, is happening like, you're with, like folks are beginning to see payments now. So it's happening now. And during 2021, Milwaukee decided to allocate um, all of the money within the first, first, the first allotment or the first payment. And the allocation was sort of broken down in this way. They spent about forty-five, uh, about fifty million dollars. Sorry, about fifty million dollars for housing programs to help rehab houses, to help Westland community, to um, put money into the housing trust. They spent about thirty million dollars for lead abatement. So Milwaukee has a lead problem, and so to help remove and re um, remove homes with like lead paint and test and, and to crank up testing. It did not address lead laterals. The city expected that to happen through like Build Back Better or an infrastructure bill, which I don't believe is passed, or a much smaller version did pass actually. Um, and then the third biggest slot of money was for what they call revenue replacement. Basically, that category categorization um, is like basically you can look back. To the year before the pandemic so looking back at 2019 look at your budget and look at your revenue and you could based on that estimate what you believe you should have been your revenue by 2021 so like you can use like inflation numbers and like just like general increases right and um and really like one of the things we were disappointed in in the first half of arpa is the fact that um is the fact that like the process our point of view is that everyday people deserve decision making for um decision making power over how the resources are spent that's something called participatory budgeting well we let everyday people let people come up with ideas create ideas what they want to see in their community and then vote on said ideas and we didn't see that in the first half fast forwarding to now what we're beginning to see is that basically $160 million out of the $197 million that Milwaukee will be receiving in the second allotment of ARPA funding is gonna be used for 
again under that revenue replacement um, line. So it's not going to be to expand services. It's not going to be to um, sorry, my dog. Not going to be to increase increase um, increase programs or opportunities. But instead, what they're trying to do with that is just to fill budgetary holes because Milwaukee has a structural problem, and that structural problem in many ways is caused by police and policing. What we see in Milwaukee, we wrote a report last year, um, a pension report, that highlighted that we talked about at the beginning of the call that about $300 million a year goes to police just within the budget, and that's 46% of the budget. One of the underlying things, or one of the underlying costs of policing is the pension. Because, uh, and we highlight this in our report, because of Act 10, which strip collective bargaining rights for state employees, except police and fire, the police are getting a deal that no other city workers get. And that is driving up the cost of what it costs to police and policing. And so that's leading, creating a structural deficit. Basically, the pension fund is in large part unfunded. And so what we're, what we're trying to say is actually, in this moment, we need to have a robust conversation and, let, and like be honest and level with our community and our residents about what's at stake and what is needed. And, and, and then ask the question, how do we want to move forward? And I'll give you an example. Like We have to name that like, as so much stuff happens, we keep saying we want more police. Let's get more police. But we have to be honest with people and say, actually, we can't afford police. And if we do afford police, that's going to come at the expense of your trash getting picked up every week. Instead of every week, it might be every 10 days or something like that. We have to be honest. I, I like to say it like this, and I'll let you jump back in. I like to say it like this. When I was growing up, and still to this day, my dream car is a Hummer. A big old Hummer. I really wanted a Hummer. I still do want a Hummer. But I have to be honest with myself that I can't afford a Hummer. And I have to ask myself, well, is there another way for me to get to point A to point B that I can't afford? And in my case, that's like just another type of car. Because if I was to afford a Hummer, if I was to buy a Hummer, that Hummer would have to be my house. <laughs> it would have to provide my entertainment. And it would have to somehow produce some food for me because I need to eat. And the same is true in Milwaukee. People can say they want more police or so on and so forth, but it's our job to be honest to, about what they're giving up. And then if people still say they want more police, that's on them. If I still was to go out and buy a Hummer and know my financial situation, that's on me. But at least I'm making educated decisions, and too often we're not. And so we, we see these American Rescue Act funds and this American Rescue Act um, opportunity as a way to be honest with our people and as, as a way to, to, to allow them the real decision making power on how these funds are spent well I would really love well first of all thank you for for that update and for running down what's going on I love what you said you said so much but uh, what jumps off out to me um, mostly is participatory budgeting participatory budgeting if we have participatory budgeting and I think that's what's missing right now what would it be yeah. like if, if we had if we had effective 
participatory budget? Yeah, I think it would create a whole other dynamic, right? Too often we have a mayor who was just elected uh, last what uh, last month, a little bit over a month ago, and we have a common council made up of 15 people. Usually, right now it's 13 people because the mayor is no longer. He left. He he resigned from his seat to be mayor, and then another alderman resigned to be the budget director. So 13 people. We have 13 people representing the vast. Um, the rest of the, all of Milwaukee. And 13 people are making decisions, um, are going to be making decisions over the next month about how this, this money is spent. And we don't think that's, we don't think that's fair. We want to see, we want to see everyday people, community by community, coming together and having conversations around what is needed in, in your community, or my community, or our community, what's needed. And to create a proposals around what they would like to see, whether that's it could be something as simple as we want a couple benches at the corner because oftentimes um, there's a group of older people who congregate at the corner to have coffee on Thursdays, and we want a little some benches and a little table so they can have somewhere to meet. Um, we want street lights. Our street lights are out, or. Um, you know, they're not on our block, and we think um, streetlights would be really nice because, especially in the winter, um, it gets dark early, and a lot of people have to walk home from the bus stop, and they're doing it in the dark, and they don't feel safe. We want, we, we really want, and participatory budgeting invites these, these organic solutions to problems that are in, in community, not these one-size-fits-all approaches not these um, approaches that um, only serve or benefit a certain section of our, our population or a certain section of our people. But how do we build power with so that we are able to make decisions about what, what our communities look like? And I think it'd be an empowering experience. It would engage people. <laughs> it would bring communities together in ways in which they probably haven't been together in a long time. And so that's why we're asking so hard for participatory budgeting. You know, during the, uh, when the, when the uh, COVID-19 first, first broke out, broke out when it was during the election time, people were lined up for blocks. They were putting themselves at risk uh, to vote. And we didn't have enough polls open, but people were so committed during the, um, the presidential election that they were putting themselves at risk. However, in the local election, like for example, the school board races, you know, we're turning out at maybe 10%, which is very, very low. And in order to have this participatory budgeting process work, I would think that we'd have to do something about changing some things legislatively on the local level. However, that, wouldn't that, that would imply that people have to come out and voice their, um, you know, the, the will of the people must be heard. And unless we participate in local um, politics, then how do we actually get this participatory budgeting? Yeah, thanks for the question. I think it's a couple fold. I, I do think, like, it is, um, we have to be ready to engage in local fights and local politics because local politics, local elections 
have the most impacts on our lives. And so we have to be ready and, and to engage in that. So I think that's the first part. I also think that like, right, and you noted that people were willing to show up and, and risk COVID and, and show up and wait in long lines to participate in elections. Um, and so we have to we have to give people something to vote for, and we have to um, really be able to to tell and articulate what's on the line. And then secondly, we we just have to be committed. I always think about Ella Baker, and one of the things Ella Baker says is we have to fight every day of the year, every year of our life until we win. And we have to um, to create what Robin Kelly calls freedom dreams, to, to allow people to imagine into a freedom dream, right? That they're willing to fight every day of the year, every year of the election we win. And so I think part of it, we have to expand our political imagination, um, give something, some, like give people something to work towards, and then we just have to commit, right? We every day have to commit to doing something to move us closer to that goal and I think the, the work we're trying to do is and it's easy it's easy so easy for too many people to be turned off from these systems to be turned off from um, elections or to be turned off from um, local advocacy and organizing work because they haven't they haven't seen um, their lives improve and we have to reject that at every turn and give people, like empower people to build power with so they can see themselves in these systems, so they can see these, themselves in these processes that we're willing to fight for. So we have to like let them know and like the work is that actually, yeah, we hear you, we feel you that this elected official um, hasn't done this or that, like as a city, we haven't done this or that we hear you that you tried to call and you didn't get like like nobody called you back or you didn't hear the re-elected official. We we see you, we hear you. And we still we still can do this. We're still working on this project to build power with so that you can see yourself in this process. We still value you. We still value your voice. And although other folks haven't always, we want to build build this participatory budgeting model out so that your voice is heard. Like we know for a fact your vote, vote matters in these processes. And so that goes back to like being willing and, and, and ready to have more conversations with people, um, to engage people where they are and hopefully be able to move them um, in new directions. Got it. So local government, uh, like what we know when you think about government and representing, we're, we're electing our president or Congress, we you know we we hear that government is of the people for the people and by the people but until we can bring that home locally you know things are going to probably remain the same there are other people on this call who have questions i know dr james has some questions and sister afua um, don't let me ask all the questions because i'll be going for uh, another hour I have, a, I have a few more questions I would love to ask Devin. And uh, Sister Ante, I know you had a few questions too. Well, you know, we, we moved through so quickly. We didn't allow uh, Mama Sarta to give 
the ancestral profile. We had the spoken word, but not the profile. So we do need to allow um, a mama Asarta to give that ancestral profile. And um, and then my point that I'd like to bring up on this subject is one that we began about two weeks ago when um, we were talking um, with um, um, Mr. Spencer, Chairman Spencer, and the question we put to him is the fact that there were seven, there are seven black leaders, really, who have been elected to key positions in this city, which the, in theory, they can uh, do all kinds of wonderful things for this city. But he pointed out that to vote is one part of the process. And the other part of the process is the one that I think that we have forgotten, people are alluding to, but you really haven't provided, Devin, the instruction precisely on what it is that is needed to be done. How do we literally have not only the backs of these leaders in that particular instance, uh, but how do we uh, move in a direction to make our voices heard as to what it is we want and what it is we expect and as a result? Yeah, do, do y'all want me to answer that now or do we want to? We might, we might want to leave it for after the top of the hour because okay. we need to do our ancestral profile and we need to give our sponsor an announcement. That sounds perfect to me. Okay, Sister Ante, did you have more to say about Dr. Leon Sullivan? I do. I think the opening spoken word um, was awesome. And um, if you would like for me to add to what you already, um, what we've already shared about him, I can go ahead and do that. Okay, and then right after that, could you do the um, the sponsor announcement too? I will. Okay. okay. Our ancestral profile, of course, this evening is for Reverend Leon Howard Sullivan Jr. Uh, who was a, a successful minister, civil rights advocate, humanitarian, and corporate leader known for his creation of the Opportunities Industrialization Centers of America, OIC, and the Sullivan Principles to promote political reform in South Africa. Leon Sullivan was born in Charleston, West Virginia on October 16, 1922. He attended racially segregated schools in Charleston and then received a basketball and football scholarship at predominantly black West Virginia State College. A foot injury ended his athletic career and forced Sullivan to work in a steel mill to pay for college tuition. At the age of 18, Leon Sullivan became a Baptist minister 
Three years later, Sullivan met Reverend Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who convinced him to move to New York City to attend the Union Theological Seminary. Sullivan was enrolled between 1943 and 1945. Two years later, he received a master's degree in religion from Columbia University. Reverend Sullivan served briefly as Reverend Powell's assistant at Abyssinian Baptist Church and then became pastor of First Baptist Church of South Orange, New Jersey. In 1950, Sullivan became pastor of Philadelphia's Zion Baptist Church, remaining there until 1988. While at Zion, the church membership increased from 600 to 6,000 members. Realizing that job discrimination was a major problem in Philadelphia, Sullivan organized and led successful campaigns to challenge discrimination. One such campaign, known as Selective Patronage Program, was an organized boycott of companies that engaged in employment discrimination. Reverend Sullivan also recognized the need for job training in African-American communities, which he felt would assist the effort to end employment discrimination. In 1964, Sullivan founded and led the first Opportunities Industrialization Centers of America Incorporated, with the first school in an, in an abandoned Philadelphia jail. This nonprofit organization established employment and training programs. As of 2008, OIC has grown to include 60 affiliated programs in 30 states and the District of Columbia. In 1971, Sullivan was elected to the board of directors at General Motors Corporation at a time, at that time, the largest employer in South Africa. Sullivan used his position within this corporation to oppose discrimination. To this end, in 1977, Sullivan created the Sullivan Principles, a code of conduct for corporations operating out of South Africa. The Sullivan Principles were designed to protect human rights and protect and promote equal opportunity for workers in South Africa. This code of ethics was widely acknowledged for challenging racial discrimination in South Africa and helping dismantle apartheid. In 1997, Sullivan ended the Sullivan extended. I'm sorry, extended the Sullivan principles, and with help from the United Nations Secretary General Kofi Annan, launching the Global Sullivan Principles Campaign. These expanded principles call for companies to play a larger role in the achievement of worldwide human rights, equality, economic fairness, and social justice. Sullivan also founded the Zion Investment Association, which raised money for small businesses. The International Foundation for Education and Self-Help, however, was one of the most ambitious projects of Reverend Sullivan. The program created the People's Investment Fund for Africa, the Self-Help Investment Program, the Teachers for African and Schools for Africa Program. The program had provided books and school supplies for the African continent. In 
distributed medicine to prevent river blindness and help combat the spread of HIV and AIDS. Reverend Sutherland has received, received honorary doctorates from over 50 universities and colleges for his humanitarian and philanthropic activities. For his role in helping the economically and socially disadvantaged people of the world, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President George H. Bush in 1992. In 1999, his humanitarian efforts were honored when he received the Eleanor Roosevelt Award from President William Clinton. Apart from his role as a religious, corporate, and civil rights leader, Sullivan also is a note was is a noted author. His works included America is theirs in nineteen forty eight, Build Brother Bill, nineteen sixty-nine, Philosophy of a Giant, nineteen seventy-two, Alternatives to Despair, nineteen seventy-nine, and Moving Mountains, The Principles and Purposes of Leon Sullivan, nineteen ninety-eight. Sullivan's legacy is continued by the Leon H. Sullivan Foundation. This organization's objective is to carry on Sullivan's mission of promoting positive change in the world. In January 2001, a PBS doc documentary about the life of Sullivan titled A Principled Man, Reverend Leon Sullivan aired. Reverend Leon Sullivan Jr., a member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity, died of leukemia in Scottsdale, Arizona on April 24, 2001. Reverend Leon Howard Sullivan, Jr., through awesome work and dedication, he helped Africans and African Americans to be spiritually free and to be prepared and respected in the workplace, be able to be financially free. May he rest in peace. Ashe? Now a word uh, from our sponsor, eDoc Advice. eDoc Advice is a website created to provide a place to go get answers to your health and medical concerns. Are you wanting more options than you feel you're getting? Let them help you problem solve. Go to their website and ask your questions. Their experienced professionals will help you obtain the help you need. That makes sense to you. www.edocadvice.com. They don't replace your health professional or provide you care, but they can help you to become a better consumer so you can get the best information to how to make a truly informed decision. They network with other professionals throughout the country and bring that information to you. www.edocadvice.com Thank you. Thank you. And back Thank to you, Brother Quojo. Thank you so much for reading that. And we're at the top of the hour right now. So uh, at this time, we're going to have a little station break, and we'll be back to resume this conversation in a few minutes. Uh -huh. 
Clinic Friday and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Call for an appointment at 414-988-3079. Finley Medical Clinic is accepting new patients. Vaccines and screenings for uninsured, underinsured, and insured. Located at 10721 West Capitol Drive, Suite 110. Call our office for an appointment today at 414-988. Sankofa Council of Milwaukee Radio Broadcast is an affiliate of the Black Reality Think Tank Network and it broadcasts on the Time for an Awakening radio platform. Contact them at Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. I repeat, 
Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. Yes, we're going to be all right. We're going to be all right. As long as we have the African-American Roundtable and leaders like this young man here, Devin Anderson, because what we really do need in our village is an intergenerational involvement as we approach what's missing and the problems that we're facing. We really do need to be intergenerational. So I'm just so happy that uh, Devin is with us tonight. And... I know there are listening, uh, listeners out there in the audience who may want to chime in in this conversation, and our call-in number is 215-490-9832, 215-490-9832. Dr. James, do we have anybody... Uh, Want to chime in? Well, we, we while we're waiting for that, we, we've uh, ready for a, a response, a response from our guests to the point that I made before the top of the hour. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. You may want to refresh recollection, um, unless, Devin, do you remember that question? Yeah, I, I definitely remember it, but maybe, yeah, we might just want to rephrase it for everybody listening. We, we, the, what was brought up is that there is a need for us to continue to support uh, those people that we helped to elect, and to elect them is not enough for them to do the job and uh, the recommendation from Chairman Spencer when he was here is that we need to continue to provide support um, and be visible following those elections to make our voice, to continue to make our voice heard as to what it is that we're that's being expected of those leaders. So my question to you is from the African-American Roundtable, what discussions have you had around that? I've looked at some of your activities and it sounds like you have done some of that kind of support beyond the vote. And if you could talk more with us so that we know what do we need to do to make these things happen not just complain. Yeah, thank you for that question. And um, and I think I think one piece you raised before the break, um, two that I want to respond to, and, and then I'll and then I'll try to give some 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 firm next steps and and how we can can move people. Is you talked about the black leadership in the city, and you know you look at the mayor, you look at the county executive, you look at um, I, I think right now maybe six of the 13 older people, if my memory serves me right, um, are black. 
are all black. And one of the things we say, and I think um, if folks read Kianga Yamata Taylor's book, Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, published um, by Haymarket Books, um, she writes a whole chapter called Black Faces in, in High Places. And yeah, while it's wonderful at times and, and like it's cool and it's something for young people particularly maybe to look up to, to see um, to see black people holding these elected offices um, and, and aspire to, if that's their desires. We also have to note that just because you're black does not mean you share the politic or the understanding of, of what's needed um, or what our communities want. And so we do like to make that distinction is that like not that actually like we're not just blindly going to support every anybody and everybody because they're black but you have to be aligned um in our values you have to be aligned on the way we we want to see community and, and some of the issues we have not saying like like no politician i also want to be very clear that no politician is perfect um and that like there's not one politician that we agree um on a hundred percent eighty percent 75% of these shoes. And so that to your point is like, yeah, you're dealing with folks that, um, by the way, we're, we're like a C3, so we don't endorse in any elections. We don't, we don't do that. But, um, but we, we do make it, we want it to be very clear that like democracy is, is more than just voting every two years or every four years, whatever that means. It's also a process of like, actually like, holding to account the people who are in office, the people that you may have supported or maybe you didn't support. And so there are a few ways, like, yeah, like we understand in this moment in order to, to win the things we want, there are certain people who have decision-making power and those people are elected officials. And so one of the things we do is, yeah, we try to maintain relationship with people. And so that looks like maybe calling folks and, and having conversation with folks and just articulating like our point of view and where we stand on an issue and why we disagree with it. And like for the last few years since I've been in this, this position, it's been a lot of conversations with folks. But we also wanna make it clear that like, there's always something that we all can be doing to, to win the things as well. Whether that is signing one of our petitions, that to make, to adding your um, voice to a sign-on letter that we will share with the Common Council. Um, which we've done in the past, will make it known that, like, actually you are in alignment with some of the demands we're raising. Another big one is showing up at meetings, whether it's a community meeting your elder is doing within the district or a citywide uh, meeting surrounding the American Rescue Act plan or the budget, and testify, letting it be known what your position is. And some of the feedback we receive in those moments is, it's people stepping into their power. People feel powerful when they have the opportunity to um, to talk directly to to the other people and the decision-making people, and to let them know like what their lived experience is. And also, those have been some of the most impactful moments. And I, I like I want to make it very clear like we have not, by any stretch of the imagination, won all um, of the demands we've ever raised, but we have been able to move the conversation because we've engaged more people, brought them in through petitions, brought them in to testify, um, brought them in to um, lobby, to email their elected official. We've been able to move the conversation around police and policing. In the past, like, the issue of police and policing, um, no matter what, 
it was like it was an automatic yes vote and now it's it's much more contested and that's because people um people have made their voices be, be heard so how can folks take action like tangibly um and then i'll give one or two more examples but how can folks take action tangibly around the american rescue act plan in this moment first is in order to be a great advocate a great organizer you have to do some educating you got to educate yourself and so you can go if you type into the google um because i can't share links you can't you can't text links but if you type into google like arpa milwaukee you can go and you can look at a dashboard like that's like the first result will take you to a, a funding i mean a page that um has a dashboard you can then learn about like how all the first round of money has been allocated and what actually money has gone out the door so that's one thing another thing is we have a petition going around we're asking folks to sign it if you believe that um if you believe that these arpa funds should actually be going um be moved into a participatory budgeting pot not letting these 13 older people decide sign the petition and the petition and we're building towards we're having a session tuesday night where we'll talk more and explain more about the american rescue act plan arpa and like how um and we'll hear from a couple advocates one from cole uh coalition on lead emergency and another person from wisdom slash micah to talk more about like the housing components and so those are a couple of things and i just want to name that when we do this work like in service of our lives and like we don't do this work just to do it and just to like fill out reports but like we've seen we see movements on many issues based on showing up at public testimonies based on um having conversations and calling um other people and emailing them like we've seen like in the past we've seen um we've seen in 2019 sorry we've seen um alderman cogs along with other colleagues of hers put up an uh, amendment that would fund emergency housing for people displaced by sex work or displaced by lead or domestic violence something we directly asked for we've seen huge increases in funding for the earn and learn program the like cities youth um youth internship pro- summer internship program we've seen we saw five million dollars of arpa funding in the first round something we're proud of because through our advocacy through our organizing work through showing up um, and raising these questions, we've seen movement on these issues, but we also like acknowledge there's still a lot of work to do. And we always talk about like from our point of view, our movements need more people. In order to have um, enough power to consistently win, we just need more people to take active action more consistently. And so that also looks like on our point of view, and we think it's important too, we need to be always educating more people and bringing more people into movement, into organization. That's another way you can take tangible action to help um, to help hold people accountable, elected officials accountable. Um, it's a joint organization. You're definitely stronger and more connected and more powerful with other people than by yourself. So join an organization, whether it's our organization, the Roundtable, or whether it's your neighborhood association. We need more people and organizations um, as a way to to move to move elected officials and like the last point to your other point is like yeah like also like don't be afraid to to like give an elected official a pat on the back it's not something we're in that like habit of doing consistently because elected officials aren't consistently on our side but acknowledging moments when um 
there is alignment and where you where like you were able to help shape some legislation is also I think key and important as well. And we've done that like when other people produce amendments um, that we support, we strongly support and that are in line with our vision and that sometimes we help craft. So I think those are some like tangible things um, to do. If I just had to summarize it, join an organization, um, educate yourself on the issue, go to Google, type in Art from Milwaukee, learn more about it, join an organization, and then be willing to take consistent action, whether that's um, emailing your other person, showing up to community meetings, showing up to citywide meetings around these issues. There's some ways you can get involved in this moment. Thank you, Devin. Um, this is um, Sister Maya. Um, first, before I get started, Dr. James, um, your answer, I feel he, he really um, touched on your question. How about you? Um, I have a question for you, Devin. Um, yeah. As I've been listening and uh, taking note to a lot of what you had just discussed, um, I hear evidence-based evidence um, 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 activity um, based on what you just explained of education, um, participation, um, and you guys in constant communication with the uh, representatives slash legislators, um, things are starting to turn, um, change is happening, um, and the needs of the community is starting to be heard. So my question for you um, is, I had I had noted um, grooming. How um, will can the um, roundtable groom? Because um, some of us are older, we're not really um, with a part of uh, getting on and searching from a Google standpoint. So how can um, someone of older age um, could, could start um, being groomed from a civic engagement and how to participate? Yeah, thank you for that question. One of the things we're trying to do in some of the work I'm trying to lead is figuring out like how do we build an inter intergenerational political home? and why the intergenerational piece? Because it's so much, there's so much exchange that needs to happen and that that um, deserves to happen and that happening would only strengthen our movements and our organizations. And I, and I mean like exchange from um, folks who are maybe older and young folks to talk about maybe older folks and talk about like the experiences they had and young folks who like more more precisely maybe name this, the, the moment we're in today. And we want to invite those conversations because we sort of, I also feel like, right, part of part of intergenerational is almost archiving. It's archival in some ways to be able to cultivate these stories and these experiences and make sure that somebody, they, 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 they've been heard and, and somebody 
um, is able to use them. And so we want to, to, to invite that. And so we, we try and we try really hard to um, make sure that like folks across the age spectrum do feel welcome in our space. Our spaces do tend trend a little young, but younger. Um, but we, we do want to encourage that and welcome that. I think a couple of things like, you know, maybe folks aren't Googling. Um, a couple of things is like, if you're on Facebook or social media, follow us on Facebook. We try our hardest to, um, and it's just African American Roundtable on Facebook, follow us. We try our hardest to put out sort of concise community updates around these issues these issues um if you're not on facebook but you're like an email junkie um email me my email is just devin d-e-z-i-n at africanamericanroundtable.org send me an email um and say can we be added to your email list and we'd love to add you and so that's another moment where we try to send out um weekly and try weekly to just send out community updates updates on upcoming events, updates on what's happening. And then lastly, like, join, join a call, join a space with us. We, we would love um, to, to have you. And most of our spaces right now are still virtual, so you can click the Zoom link, you can call in, and we'd love to, um, to have folks because there's so much exchanging that needs to happen that can happen. Um, and so we are trying our hardest on our part to um, – to make this like accessible and, and to invite folks from all age ranges because like right we're all still sharing community we're all still in community together and so we want to like uh, send those invitations and make it as seamless and figure out what ways or what are the best ways for, for folks to engage thank you can you you brought up that there's an upcoming session um can you give us a date and a time um also, is this, will this be virtual, um, in-person, common, a combination, or? Yeah, so it's going to be. The 19th coming up, right? Uh, sorry, it's going to be virtual. Sorry, it's May 17th. But if you go to, yeah, May 17th at 6 p.m., and it'll be virtual. Um, and so, yeah, it'll just be a, a community conversation slash update on the, um, the American Rescue Act. So we're going to be talking to a couple partner orgs around like their experience advocating around it, and then updates on like on um, updates on how like the implementation of some of the wins they maybe had last year um, are going. And so let me see. Yeah, it's virtual. If you go to our Facebook page, just African American Roundtable, you can see that, and there is a registration link in the registration link. Um, it's sort of complicated. It's just bit b i t dot l y um, backslash, and then all capital is ARPA a r p a info i n f o sesh s e s s twenty twenty two, and that's all capital. Um, yeah, so that's that that's upcoming. It's it's gonna be like. You can sign up in advance. We'll also be streaming it on our Facebook page, so it'll be a yes-and uh, situation. So we would love to have you. That 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 session um, will have a, probably a couple more visual elements to it because there's Zoom. Um, 
we'd love to have you and, and we'd also have we're also gonna have um time to answer questions so that's one um other place thank you for that i have one, I, I have a couple of questions but i i would like to if i if it's okay with uh with everyone uh, i have one other question that i would like to ask and that is in regards to election um what are you finding um regarding um those that are interested in running for uh, these positions that are out here. And it doesn't have to necessarily be just local. Um, I, I want to say African-American um, interest in running and uh, becoming um, a legislator, uh, a politician. Well, I don't really care for the word politician, but um, and to have that financial support um, because money uh, now is a is needed um, it's a big part um, even though I'm a believer that uh, grassroots is it's the people who have the power it's not I don't really believe that the dollars do but I do understand when it comes to getting name uh, recognition out and all of that um, so what are you hearing um, on the ground as to those uh, that would like to run. Yeah. Um, so those who'd like to run, I think, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll start with with what I'm hearing from community, and then I'll, I'll pivot to to those who want to run. I think what we hear often from communities talking to people is, is they feel it's a disconnect. They feel it's a disconnect um, between the people who are supposed to serve them in their lives and so that maybe looks like their elected official is not holding as many or enough town halls in their district that could mean their um it could mean like their elected official isn't like providing updates or is it just isn't like isn't making the votes that like the people in the community or they would like to see made and so and that just leads to like apathy and people are like yo my vote doesn't matter like I might as well stay home because this person isn't isn't gonna you know isn't following the will of the people. And I think what we see in people maybe interested in running is that they they want to be different. They want at least the folks like we talk to or maybe we know that are considering running or running or ran is they want to have a much more unapologetic approach to um, to being an elected official, running on bolder. Uh, platforms, raising more issues that directly affect broader sections of our communities um, as well. And so I think like one of the things we also know and we want to make clear is like, yeah, like we do do voter education work, but we also know that like no election official or no election, one election will save us. And so we want to also be thinking about like what can we build within our own communities outside of like these systems as well so i think it's like all of these things feed into one each other um you know and i, and I think we're like still trying to like still trying to um still trying to like just like be able to build a strong enough narrative and, and, and an analysis and understanding about maybe how all these things work together 
if I if I may, I do have one more that I feel is very important. Getting back into the dollars um, that are um, allocated to our to the the central city, um, and Milwaukee um, was um, gifted, I say, uh, eight point five million, um, and to combat the uh, driving and traffic safety um, issues yeah. that are happening here. Can you um, share um, some of, uh, of share what's going on with that? What is the status? Because um, I've heard that a lot of the money has actually been rerouted um, from the central city and now will be more downtown on our east side, uh, which is predominantly uh, of uh, the Caucasian um, population, business, and all of that. Um, so can you can you touch a little bit on that? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, yeah, we recognize, like, it doesn't take, you know, it, it doesn't take, everybody sees the reckless driving, and everybody has to experience it and try to drive around it, like, right? I've heard people say that has, that has meant that they like don't go on certain streets and certain times they change the routes and when they do go and so on and so forth right and we want to recognize that we think that's a, a huge quality of life issue if you cannot drive down safely certain roads that means you can't access certain businesses that means those businesses those areas can't be be the best version of themselves right as far as the reckless driving money we also recognize that like part of it is we just have to build deterrence or ways for reckless driving um, to, you know, to just, it's like called like street engine, just engineer safer streets. Whether that's like people always talk about like more roundabouts, whether that is, um, you know, maybe taking two, like what they call the protected bike lane. Um, which means like the bike lane is closest to the curb and then you park like park cars would serve like serve as a buffer for that um that would basically eliminate people the opportunity to like do passing passing people in the bike lanes right um and we also believe like there are like just a lot of other like cost traffic calming measures that can be taken so your question about like and then I'll, I'll just add what we don't believe. We don't believe that giving the police an extra million dollars or giving the police extra toys or, or extra um, surveillance tech technology, we don't think that's going to stop it. And why don't we think that's going to stop it? Because the police get close to $300 million every year, and yet the problem still exists. So I'm not convinced that, that giving them an extra million dollars um, is going to work. That's, you know, let's just based on my experience and my understanding. What, to your question about like the implementation, yeah, so about a lot of money was directed to um, reckless driving throughout ARPA. My understanding right now is that like only a little bit over a million dollars has been spent so far. Um, and just really looking at ARPA spending overall, um, only $11 million has been spent or out of the door. But to your point, like, I do, it is very important. And we can see, like, places and areas that already have 
some of these like what we call like traffic calming measures taking place like you can see the protected da- um, bike lane really on the down in downtown milwaukee sort of on the east side and so it is important that we see these like actual like that we see these these infrastructure changes actually happen in the central city right i, I think we all probably know that intersection of like Fond du Lac and and Center, like right by the Center Street Library, like something has to be done there. That is one of the wildest, um, you know, and, and most violent um, intersections in the city. Just because, like, and so we do want to make sure that, like, we're tracking that money to make sure that um, some of those reckless driving funds and some of those like infrastructure repairs are actually happening in the areas that that have the most. Um, reckless driving. Thank you so much for those questions and, and for those answers. It's time for another sponsor break. Sister Ante. Yes. Sponsors. Sponsors are welcome. Do you have a service you want others to know about? Have you written a book we need to read? Consider becoming a sponsor. Send us an email at sankofacouncilmke at gmail.com. Support the program that's working for you by bringing you information you will not hear elsewhere that you need to know. Contributions to support our broadcasting efforts can be made to PayPal, sankofa underscore think at outlook.com. Thank you. And if I could lead into a question, I do have one, or if the uh, audience has one, then I'll wait until after they're done. Please. Um, Go ahead. Okay. Um, I am really impressed with this organization and the work that they're doing um, and the look, the closer, the close look that you're having at the um, funds that we are um, receiving, um, in particular with the uh, American plan, the uh, there's a lot of money, the money that's coming in from these plans, we have, I, I understand, is in addition to what the federally would be appropriated in the fiscal year or in the year of 22, um, and so I recognize also that there are other, there's various categories. You spoke mainly about the police department, but are you also looking at all the other additional funds that are coming um, towards education and um, health? departments monies these are extra monies that's being added to their to their um budget are you, does your organization cover the entire american plan yeah thank you for that question so we want to note that just because of capacity we're still pretty small and we're trying to grow that our focus is mostly on like the city of milwaukee and there are other great organizations who like are tracking the work on like the county level because the county Milwaukee County has received its own pot of money and that are tracking it um, on 
on the in the school board on the school board level because that school board has also received its own pot of money so our focus is basically mostly is almost exclusively on the city of milwaukee and so that's really what i try to contain my comments to um but yeah like we we do like spend a lot of time looking at the police department and its budget but we also want to note and name that we also look at like we want to name and note that we're, we're going to be critical of other departments um, maybe that we want to be more closer aligned to or maybe that we want to be in better relation to if they're providing if a program they have isn't working or serving our people and so whether that we can like you know like when our conversation on Tuesday night probably hear some criticisms on like just the implementation of some programs in the health department or some implementation around housing because like right we haven't seen as much movement as is needed um, on some of these programs in those areas too so so yeah okay thank you with other funding um, opportunities there has been noted that those funds are not there indefinitely they are there there is a timeline uh, to make the funds available and to distribute the funds and um, I would also like to know getting back to the American Rescue uh, Plan Act those funds um, that are brought in to the city are being distributed by whom and how do other organizations or even individuals uh, learn what they can do that makes them eligible for receiving the funds based on a concept that they might have to address the issue that the funds were made available for yeah a couple to the timeline piece and then oh, I'll, I'll get to like sort of the second part of that question to the timeline piece yeah you're right these funds are not around forever so basically the funds have to be allocated by the end of 2024 and they have to be spent by the end of 2026 and so that feels like a long time away um but we are tracking that and we want to note that like you know like i said i think sort of the top of from the comments is that the health department got about 30 million dollars for wet abatement in the past the health department hasn't been able to scale up its wet abatement program and so we want to make sure like now that they're able to scale it uh, scale up and they're scaling up now because there is like a fixed timeline and we don't want to see that money like have to be sent back to the federal government and so we are tracking that even this early in the process the second part of your question is that's why we're asking for participatory budgeting i'll just keep pivoting um is because like right we want to figure out and we want to invite like people's creativity to determine how how these funds are spent originally when this bill was passed like this bill was supposed to be to um you know largely unrestricted funding to respond to COVID 19 pandemic and to expand services in whatever way and like right the government made it the federal government made these funds like unrestricted 
to invite creative interventions and solutions to the problems. And so to your point around like how, like yeah, nonprofit organizations can receive these funds. There's no provision saying, yeah, you cannot send these funds to individual people. But the political will and the political imagination isn't there to make that invitation for nonprofits or organizations to submit a proposal that they think could solve um, solve a problem they're having with the community. The imagination isn't there to, to create an emergency fund for folks who are really, really struggling with the COVID-19 pandemic and who maybe need a cash payment. And so that's why we're, we, we are asking for participatory budgeting. Make an offering to invite people into the process, to invite people's creativity and to, to ask the question and answer the question, what is it that my community could use? How could I strengthen my community? What would you strengthen my And so um, to your point, like your ideas are, are great and valid, but I think like under without participatory budgeting, they won't go far. So we want to make that invitation, support participatory budgeting if you want to see organizations be able to receive these funds. Um, so, you're, so you're saying even though through the act itself it identifies what area X amount of money will be going to that when it comes to the state, you know, when our portion comes to the state of Wisconsin, that that all money is in a pile and there is no justification for how even though it outlines how that money is to be spent, that it's that it still can come in one lump sum and then the locals decide really how they're going to use that additional money? But, yeah, no, I'll, I'll try to clarify. The, the point I was trying to make is that there are very few restrictions on what the money can be used for. So there's, like, a lot of flexibility and what like the city of Milwaukee uses its share of the money on. Um, that was that's sort of the distinction I'm trying to make. So to your point, I think you asked about like individuals and in organizations could they be eligible to receive that fund? I'm I'm, I'm saying yeah, like they could be, they can be eligible to receive that fund. What I'm saying is like currently how the common council, the common council decides how the funds are used. So they are the decision makers on like how the ARPA funds are used. So it's like, yeah, they just have like general votes around it. What I'm saying is if we adopted something like participatory budgeting, um, that would give us the power to create the ideas and to be able to fund the programs we think would be useful. Does that help clarify? Well, I don't quite understand Yes, it helps, but I don't still quite understand how does one learn how to access the funds? How does one learn one, we've, we're mentioning this act, we've mentioned that there are funds and there are people who are probably among our listeners to say, oh, I've got an idea. And is there some place that they might go where they can receive 
a, a simple explanation for how they go about applying for and what documents are going to need to be submitted to support your project. Yeah. Okay. But, um, I'm sure there are people out there and they, they like myself, I get stopped at that point. Oh, great. There's some money there and there aren't a lot of restrictions, but what are the steps? What are the mechanics of actually submitting one's idea, their application? We're down to one minute. Okay. All right. Sounds good. I'll wrap in a minute. So to your question, no, you can't do that. So currently how the funds are, are right now is that the common council, the, com the city, all their people, they have the process. They own the process. Like regular people can't access the funds. It's like through an aldermanic process. It's through the committees. So if you follow the finance and personnel committee, you can, um, you can see them have conversations on what ARPA can be used for. That's why we're asking for participatory budgeting. If we got past participatory budgeting and we got a certain amount allotted, then we would have the flexibility to figure out like how we want to access our people to be able to access and make proposals that would be voted on by the rest of their community. And I'll wrap because we said one minute and my minute's right. Well, thank you so much for, for being here, Devin and giving us this um, valuable information. And I'd like to also thank um, Dr. Uh, William Rogers and Sankofa Council of Elders for participating, and uh, also the production staff, and uh, like I said, the Sankofa Council and, and all of us, the support that we've had uh, this evening. We look forward to bringing you more programs in the future that uh, we hope you enjoy. So visit our sponsor, www.edocadvice.com and the Finley Medical Clinic. So uh, good night and stay safe. And there was one, one, uh, what was this, kind of like a vision that I had would be that these nine, well, these eight um, African-American elected officials including the mayor, the county executive, the city attorney, the chief of police, the sheriff, the superintendent of public schools, the treasurer, and six of the 13 members of the common council. That's a lot of power right there. I would love to see the African-American roundtable host a meeting, host a roundtable for that group to actually look at some of the disparities that we have here in our city. That's um, a wish that I have. <laughs> is that possible, Devin? Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe at some point. <laughs> All right. But take care, everyone. Good night.
Finley Medical Clinic. We serve uninsured, underinsured, and insured individuals. Open Monday through Thursday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Urgent Care Clinic Friday and Saturday from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Call for an appointment at 414-988-3079. Finley Medical Clinic is accepting new patients. Vaccines and screenings for uninsured, underinsured, and insured. Located at 10721 West Capitol Drive, Suite 110. Call our office for an appointment today at 414-988. Sankofa Council of Milwaukee radio broadcast is an affiliate of the Black Reality Think Tank Network and it broadcasts on the Time for an Awakening radio platform. Contact them at Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. I repeat, Sankofa Council MKE at gmail.com. 